Well, folks, um, you're in for a real treat this morning. Um, our guest speaker is uh, a gentleman I've known for a number of years. Um, he's a, a great man uh, of the faith. He, he loves to teach. Um, his name is uh, Tony Papadikis, at least that's how I pronounce it. Um, Tony has been a, um, a licensed elder uh, through the Karis Fellowship. Uh, he has served in numerous leadership positions. Uh, most recently, uh, he's uh, an elder down at the Grace Chapel down in Helen, Maryland, although he's on sabbatical right now because he's ministering to his wife, and I really respect and appreciate that as well. Uh, Tony attended uh, James Madison University, uh, receiving a Bachelor in Philosophy and Religion, uh, religion then completed a Master of Religion with Languages from Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. And he is currently completing advanced studies in New Testament Greek. And he will be teaching Introduction to Philosophy at the College of Southern Maryland in the fall. All of that, and he has a full-time job as well. Uh, this is a very, very busy man. So I greatly appreciate uh, Tony's ministry to us. So uh, that being said... Brother Tony, welcome, and we're delighted you're here. Thank you, brother. Thank you. I wish my wife could have been here to hear, hear what he just said about me, because that makes it sound impressive. <laughs> so by way of introduction, the question I always get is about my last name. I, call, I say it Papadikis, but... The reality is, is that for most of my life, I have not known how to pronounce my own last name. My dad literally came over on the boat from Athens, and whoever said my dad could speak English was just being really gracious about the whole thing, you know? And so growing up, my dad bounced between different pronunciations of the last name. And so it would be Papadakis, Papadikis, you know, and just whatever, because his English was no so good, right? And so... I grew up not knowing, and, and people would say, you know, how do you pronounce your last name? However you want, it's okay. And I wasn't trying to be, you know, demurring or gracious or anything. It's, I was trying to avoid saying, I, I, I don't know either. It's okay. <laughs> so about nine years ago, my sister and I went down to Florida to visit the old man. And my sister, Christine, is here with me today. And we just had, I had one mission on this visit, beyond saying hi and whatnot. One mission. Dad, what is the correct pronunciation of this last name? I'm in my 40s. I can handle it now, Dad. Give it to me. So we took him out to a Greek restaurant, and we sat down, and you know, we're talking, and I finally asked him the question, what is the correct way to pronounce, pronounce this last name? And he says, Papadiakis. And I'm like, Dad, that, my English ears can't hear diakis. Is it ah or I? And then he shrugged and said, well, actually, the correct way to pronounce it is Papathikis. Papathikis. I was like, what? <laughs> There's a D there, Dad. Delta, D. I don't get TH out of that. Well, anyway, the server comes at that point to take our order, and Dad places his order. Now, a lot of Americans mispronounce this dish. They'll call it a gyro. It is actually pronounced gyro, but when my dad ordered it, he called it a gyro. <laughs> I'm like, dude, are you sure you're Greek? <laughs> I mean, really? <laughs> So anyway, we go to another restaurant. Uh, this is down in Tarpon Springs. And if you've never been to Tarpon Springs, Florida, it's about 40 miles north of Tampa Bay. Big Greek community there. It was awesome. It was like the one place where I didn't stand out with the name. And uh, we go to a Greek restaurant, and I get a Greek server who has spent time in Greece. And I was like, great, wrote out my last name. How do you pronounce this? And he said, Papadikis. I was like, that's what Dad was saying. Can't hear this. What? And, and he shrugged and said, it's actually Papathikis. I was like, huh, maybe the old man is from Greece. Hmm. 
about three or four months ago, my youngest daughter, who's living in Richmond, she uh, met a Greek couple, a, a friend of family thing, and they got all excited about the last name. We're Greek too, we're Greek too. And they confirmed the correct pronunciation. The Greek pronunciation of the last name is in fact Papa Thykes. I was like, huh, okay. I'm 51 years old and I now know how to pronounce my last name. I know you're happy for me. <laughs> so with that, <clears throat> a guy who doesn't know how to pronounce his own last name, Dennis thought I should be the one to bring you the word of God today. <laughs> Nothing will go wrong. <laughs> actually, I found out not too long ago when I was at, um, no, actually it was quite a long time ago, uh, I was at James Madison and I was walking down one of the halls, I was going to see a professor, and there was, you know how they have the nameplates right by their doors, and I saw a nameplate, Dr. Papadikis. I was like, Zzz! oh, Dr. Papadikis, that looked good, you know, so I had to go introduce myself, and she told me the story of the last name, um, that in the constant wars between Greece and Turkey, there was a time when Turkey had conquered Greece, this would have been 1700s, something like that. The name Papadikis at that point did not exist. But what Turkey was determined to do was to hold on to Crete once and for all. And to do that, they were determined to exterminate Greek Orthodoxy. And so what happened was there were a whole bunch of Greek Orthodox churches that sprung up as underground churches. And these uh, Orthodox fathers would be teaching children, you know, the catechism, teaching them the faith, that sort of thing. But whenever those schools were found out, they would immediately execute that father and take those children and, and relocate them to Turkey. Because Turkey's idea was, we will make these Turkish children, and that way we'll always hold on to Turkey. Well, as they began killing these fathers, a cry went up. What about the children of these fathers? What about the children of these fathers? Papathikes, Papathikes, that's what the last name means. It means the sons of the father or the children of the father. And so it was a cry that went up. And so the children who were affected by that were given the last name. They were really given a title, Papathikes, and eventually it became the last name. So before 1700s, that name doesn't even exist. Uh, which, you know, it's kind of cool to think that somewhere in my past there's a martyr to the faith. I think that's kind of cool. Okay, all that by way of introduction. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this time to come together as your people. Lord, I pray that for these few moments that we have, that it would be your word spoken, that it would be Christ himself who would be lifted up and exalted. Father God, this is not about us, it's about you. And Lord, may we make much of you, both in our service and with our lives. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. May you be pleased with our worship. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, informal survey. Let me do an informal survey. When you are going to read your Bible, what are the parts of the Bible that you absolutely love to read? Love to read. Think about that for a second. These are the parts of the Bible that, man, I just want to jump to that. I enjoy it. I've read it. I've reread it, etc. How many of y'all love the Psalms? How many of y'all love Psalms? Okay. How many of y'all like books like uh, Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, maybe the book of James? Okay. The wisdom literature, good practical stuff. Okay. How many of y'all like the Gospels? Gospels? Reading about Jesus? I'm uh, doing uh, something right now where we're translating the entire New Testament from Greek into English, and every time we hit the Gospels, because we're not doing the books in order, when we hit the Gospels, for me, it's like, ah, I like the Gospels. Um, definitely my favorite parts of Scripture. How many of y'all like the Old Testament stories? Old Testament stories? Yeah, good, good Old Testament person. All right, how many of y'all like Paul's epistles? Yeah, okay, my theology people, yeah, okay, I'll admit it, mm-hmm. How many of y'all like the, uh, the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the law? 
<laughs> the last time I read through Leviticus, for the first time, I actually understood it. It was a great book. It really was. Okay, how many of all your favorite parts of the Bible is to sit down and read genealogies? Nobody? Not one? Come on. Okay, I get it. Genealogies are some of the most boring parts of the Bible that we have. In other words, it's a whole bunch of names that we can't pronounce in the first place, and they mean absolutely nothing to us. However, sometimes those genealogies are actually really important, and there's an important message in those genealogies. So what we're going to do today is we're actually going to walk through one of those genealogies. And I know what some of y'all are thinking. If we're doing a genealogy, I'm out of here. Of course, you're not going to say it that way. You're going to say, oh, I need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> I need to go too. No, you don't. <laughs> But anyway, if you would, turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. Now, in reality, we're going to be on the last two verses of chapter 4, because that's where it starts. Genesis chapter 4. And as you're turning, I'd like to give you some background, because if we don't have context here, you won't understand what's going on. Without context, you're going to see the names and the years these guys lived, and you're going to think, what is this about? This is just a dry recitation of names and, and years, but there's something more important going on. And oh, by the way, just as a side note, this is a water bottle. I, I preached one time, and someone in the back thought I was drinking out of a ketchup bottle. So, <laughs> just need to say it. Okay, let me give you a little background to the genealogy that we're going to read. In Genesis chapter 3, we read about Adam and Eve and their sin. And the important part to understand about that is that Adam threw Eve under the bus. 1 Thessalonians tells us that Eve was deceived. She was deceived. Now, she has absolutely no excuse for being deceived. When you take afternoon walks with God, there is absolutely no excuse for being deceived, right? However, she was. But the thing is, is that in Genesis, it says that she ate from the fruit, and then she gave the fruit to her husband, who was with her. That doesn't mean that she had to walk through the garden and go find her. It means that he was standing there the whole time, watching this whole thing go down. When 1 Thessalonians says that Eve was deceived, it is silent about Adam. What's the implication? He's not deceived. He's watching this thing go down. He knows exactly what's happening. Why does he let it go down? Because he wanted that fruit. He didn't know what the consequences were going to be, so he let his wife be the guinea pig. He threw her under the bus to get what he was looking for. So in that story, Adam is the real bum. Eve has no excuse, but Adam is a bum. But what we see is sin that has germinated in Adam's heart and has had devastating consequences for the human race. In Genesis chapter 4, we read about their sons, Cain and Abel. And Cain rises up and kills his brother. And what the writer is saying is that the sin that has germinated in Adam's heart has now taken root in Cain's heart. And then in chapter 4, we get a quick genealogy. The genealogy of Adam to Cain to Irad to Enoch to Methuel to Methusael to Lamech. Now, that's seven generations that the, that the genealogy goes out. Now, where are my Old Testament guys? I saw someone over here. Number seven in the Old Testament means what? Come on, yell it out. It means perfection. Okay, it's considered a perfect number. What the writer is doing is he's taking the genealogy from Adam down to Lamech, and he's saying that the sin that germinates with Adam that took root in Cain has now come to completion, has come full circle, and you see it in all its ugliness with Lamech. Because with Lamech, we see a guy who is highly accomplished, 
But by the same token, he is a spiritual train wreck. This guy is a major league jerk. And that's what the writer is trying to say, that this sin is progressing and that it's walking through the human race and it is devastating people's walk with God or people's understanding with God because Lamech is just, he's an ugly person. You can read about it. Highly accomplished guy and his kids were highly accomplished, but he himself was a train wreck, a spiritual train wreck. And then the writer just stops. It's like he just does a hard stop and he picks it back up with Adam and Eve. He just wanted to show this is what sin looks like. It's progressing through the human race. And then, chapter 4, verse 25, he backs up to Adam and Eve, and he picks the story up again, starting from the very top. Verse 25, Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, for she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. Okay, I have uh, had relations with his wife. You may have knew his wife. You may have something else. We get the idea. We're adults, right? <clears throat> but the Hebrew word there is the word yada, yada. And yada, when it gets translated as new, people tend to think of that in kind of, in the sense of having carnal knowledge of Eve. Well, my response to that is, these two were cruising around in their birthday suits in the garden, right? And at this point, this is at least their third child. Probably they've already had more. So I'm thinking they already know each other. They have detailed knowledge of each other. That is not what this means. Yada has the sense of not just knowing, but it's knowing in the sense of a loving tenderness. <coughs> Excuse me. It's telling us or giving us a hint of what happened to Adam and Eve after they were removed from the garden. It's letting us know that there was forgiveness between Adam and Eve, that there's that tenderness that has been restored between them, that there was reconciliation between Adam and Eve, and that there was genuine love between Adam and Eve. Now remember, Adam threw Eve under the bus, and Eve was a willing idiot. There was a lot to work through in terms of their marriage. And so my first question is simply this. After Adam and Eve had royally screwed up, how did they reconcile their marriage? What caused them to forgive and to rekindle that marriage? And the answer is actually found in Genesis chapter 3. So if you will, flip back one chapter to Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve have screwed up and God is now laying down judgment. <clears throat> and he's talking to the serpent who's caused all this. And if you look down at verse 15, it says this. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, I've got seed. You may have offspring. But the Hebrew word there is singular, one. This is the promise of God saying, I'm going to send somebody who is going to set this mess straight. What has happened here, what the serpent and Adam and Eve have done to screw up humanity I will send someone who is going to get this set straight. It'll be one person I send. He will set it straight. Well, what is this? Who is that person? Jesus. This is the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. This is typically referred to as a proto-euangelion. How's that for a word? Proto-euangelion. Next time you're at a party, go ahead and use that. Makes you sound smart. It's Greek. Proto-euangelion. Euangelion is a Greek word for gospel, and proto is the Greek word for first. It's the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. And it's significant that it's here in Genesis 3, that as soon as original sin happens, God is saying, I'm going to give you the gospel. I will send, I will send one who will get this set straight. 
he is showing grace because Adam and Eve expected that the punishment for this was going to be a capital punishment, and that is not what they received. And so he has given them the gospel. And so when we look at the restoration of Adam and Eve in terms of their relationship, he is saying that there is someone coming who is going to set all this straight, that the sin that exists in this relationship will get set straight by the person who is coming. It's the gospel that set their relationship straight. In the light of the gospel, there is no need to point fingers. Each person can take responsibility for their actions. In the light of the gospel, there is no need to hold a grudge. As each of them have been freely forgiven by God, so each of them can freely forgive each other. And more importantly, they can forgive themselves. Oftentimes, forgiving yourself is the hardest part. In the light of the gospel, Adam and Eve were free to love one another completely as a reflection of the love that God has shown to them, a love he showed them even in the midst of his severity. Adam and Eve should have died, but instead, God showed them grace, and he made them a pivotal part of his plan to set things straight again. As each person is loved by God, they're free to love each other. Is that amazing? That's the strength of the word yada in Genesis 4.25. Adam and Eve did far more than make a baby. They genuinely forgave and loved each other. This is actually the uh, last note of Adam and Eve in the Bible. Uh, Adam gets mentioned a couple times, but just for theological reasons, this is the last mention of them as a couple in the Bible, and it's letting us know they patched it up. They patched it up, and they stayed together, and they loved each other. They were able to work through that. And so I look at this and think, for those people who have marriages that are in trouble, <clears throat> I present to you the gospel that can restore your broken relationships. How does the gospel restore our broken relationships? It starts by first restoring our broken relationship with God, which is far more fundamental. Our reconciliation with God is the basis of any reconciliation with another person. Do you struggle with who you are and what your part is in this life? Look at what God has done with Adam and Eve. In saying that you will have a descendant who will be the person who will set all this straight, he's saying, Adam and Eve, I'm not done with you yet. Yes, you blew it, but you will still be a pivotal part in my plan to restore this and make this straight. And so, <coughs> excuse me, for those who struggle with your part in this life, I present to you the gospel that restores our very purposes to the mission of God in this world, and he gives us a vital part to play in this. There's not a person that God doesn't save that he doesn't have a plan for, that you play a vital role to reach people and to accomplish things in this life that God wants you to, that God wants you to reach and things to do. You are part of his mission, just like Adam and Eve are. You may not understand it. I don't think Adam and Eve fully understood the gospel, not by a long shot, but he certainly gives purpose to every person and says, here's what I want from you. Here's what I'm looking for. Okay, so Yadah points to the promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, and the promise of the gospel casts a very long shadow in the Old Testament, and especially in this genealogy that we're about to read. Let's flip back. Chapter 4, verse 25. You have, hopefully, and I had a copy, you have notes. I didn't bring mine up. You got a handout? And on the back, you're going to see a whole bunch of names on the back with some blanks. What I encourage you to do is we walk through this genealogy I want you to take notes on what you learn about these people. If you will take notes when we get to the end of this message, you're going to be very, very glad that you took notes because when we're going to put it all together, it'll make sense. But if you haven't taken the notes, you're going to miss out. So, <coughs> excuse me. 
as we're walking through this, please do take notes. And I'm sorry, I'm very parched right now. <clears throat> Verse 25. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. When she talks about, uh, when she says that God has appointed, that is what Seth's name means. Seth literally means appointed. So if I'm taking a note on Seth, I'm going to use the word appointed. That's a note I'd want to take. Seth has been appointed. Eve is asking a question. She's saying, hey, God has made this promise to me, to us, about sending a son. One of our children or one of our descendants will be the promised child who will get this set straight. And she's looking at this child saying, is this him? Is this the promised child? And that's why she names him Seth. Is this the child who has been appointed? And the answer to that is no, but let's keep moving. <clears throat> Verse 26, to Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then man began to call upon the name of the Lord. I think that's significant, that all of a sudden we're seeing people calling upon the name of the Lord. <clears throat> that people are beginning to reject the ungodliness of guys like Lamech, and instead they are calling upon the name of the Lord, that they're seeking after him. If I'm taking a note on Enosh, though, I'm taking a note on his name and what it means. His name actually means mankind. Mankind. Now, from here, the genealogy is going to begin in earnest. So if you would, Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day that they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness according to his image and named him Seth. Now let's stop right here. Let's understand that this genealogy is going to go through the line of Seth, not the line of Cain. In chapter 4, we dealt with the line of Cain, and we saw that Cain... And, the, and these guys are rebelling against God. They're running away from God. But through Seth, we're going to see people following God. They're going to be pursuing the Lord. And I also want you to notice the pattern of what, what he writes here. I'm going to zip through some verses here pretty quickly. Watch the pattern. Back to verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters, so all the days of Adam were 930 years, and he died. Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh, and then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh, and he had other sons and daughters, so all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Enosh lived 90 years, became the father of Kenan. Then Enosh lived 815 years after he became the father of Kenan, he had other sons and daughters, so all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Okay, there's a pattern there, yes? So-and-so lived this long, he had this child, lived another X number of years, and then after that, after so many years, he died. That's the pattern. Here's what doesn't come across in what you're reading, in your translation. What doesn't come across is that this is a form of Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry. And what the writer is saying is, look, up to this point, I've been kind of just narrating what's going on. I've been giving you kind of history. But now I'm dropping into poetry because I want you to slow down and I want you to see this. I want you to read this a little bit more carefully because this genealogy is important. And so he's saying, slow down. Pay attention to this genealogy. <clears throat> First thing I want to do is I want to look at 
who we've already talked about. First of all, we have Kenan. Okay, Seth gives birth uh, to Kenan, verse 12. Kenan lived 70 years, and he became the father of Mahalalel. Then Kenan lived 840 years after he became the father of Mahalalel, and he had other sons and daughters, so all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. What does Kenan mean? What do we know about Kenan? Virtually nothing. Virtually nothing. Um, in this day, when names actually meant something, you would, you would give meaning to the names. Nobody knows what this name means. Uh, you know, guys have guessed, but they really are just that, guests, guesses. So whatever this name meant, Kenan has kind of been lost to history. So I would take a note with this guy that he's a bit of a nobody. Now, I'm not saying he's a nobody to God. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that what was significant about him, we don't really know. But if I'm taking a note, I would take a note that he is a nobody. Verse 15. Mahalalel lived 65 years, and he became the father of Jared. Then Mahalalel lived 830 years after he became the father of Jared, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. Mahalalel, that's a great name. It kind of rolls off the tongue, you know? I actually thought about naming my son Mahalalel. <laughs> Mahalalel Papadikas. Yes. <laughs> Poor kid, he would have gotten beat up every day at school. Anyway, Mahalalel. The name itself literally means the praise of God. The praise of God. And so if I'm taking a note, I'm calling him the praise of God. Now, if Kenan named his son the praise of God, does that give us an indication of what his walk with God was like? Sure it does. Sure it does. Was he truly a nobody? Nah, not to God. Not to God and not at all. Verse 18. Jared lived 162 years and became the father of Enoch. Then Jared lived 800 years and he became the father of Enoch and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. <clears throat> okay, Jared takes a little bit of unpacking because his name is a little bit slippery. It can mean multiple things. The first thing it can mean is servant. Okay, servant like a, an employee or a, a manservant, something like that, a butler, however you want to call that. Uh, he was, it can mean servant, but it can also mean descend. Like you would walk down a staircase, you would descend a staircase. It can mean that. And the third thing that it can mean, and hold on for this one, it can also mean robe. Not like I would rise up out of bed, but... Did I just lose my sound? No, there I am. <clears throat> it can mean the flower rose. Now for us, that's a little strange, isn't it? Because we're used to rose being a girl's name. And so, I don't know, I guess these guys thought differently, okay? So if you're taking a note on Jared, I want you to write down three things. Servant, descend, and rose. Servant, descend, and rose. His name is a little slippery. Verse 21, Enoch. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Did you notice it? Pattern broke, didn't it? The pattern broke. What's he saying here? He's saying that Enoch did not experience physical death. When God took him, whoop, straight up to heaven. He did not go through physical death. Now, only two people in the Bible escaped physical death, did not experience physical death. Who's the other one? Oh, come on, say it. Elijah. Elijah. Yep, chariot comes, whoop, takes him, 
and he's gone. One of only two people who do not experience physical death. And so the question is, how come? Why? Why did Enoch not experience physical death? And the answer is, it's not explained. It is not explained. It's just mentioned. We'll come back to why that might be, but for the moment, we're simply going to say that, in a sense, Enoch overcame death. In a sense, he overcame death. And so if I'm taking a note on Enoch, I would note two things. One, his name means dedicated. That's literally what the name Enoch means. But I would also note that he conquered death or overcame death. Either way works. And yes, I'm taking a little poetic license here, but this is poetry after all. Enoch, dedicated and conquered death. lost my place. All right. Verse 25. Methuselah. Methuselah lived 187 years and became the father of Lamech. Then Methuselah lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. Okay. Methuselah is a name that it's, there's a whole lot packed into this name. It's a Hebrew word picture. And so we need to get all of this unpacked a little bit. I want to start with what you know, okay? When you think of a king or a queen of Europe sitting on their throne, ruling, right, in that uh, royal role, they hold something in their hand to represent their right to rule. What is it? Scepter, very good. It's an ornate stick with an ornate thingy on top, okay? I'm a programmer, you know, this is just how we think. Um, In the days of the Old Testament, however, Scepters were not a thing. Nobody had ever thought of what a scepter was. That is a later development. So in the Old Testament, what you typically see are kings who hold a spear. They would hold a spear. And if you look through 1 Samuel, you'll see this all over the place, that every time Saul, King Saul, is mentioned, he's holding a spear. And in chapters 18, 19, and 20, he's throwing it at David. Well, a king who would throw a spear was executing judgment. And his holding of that spear, the holding of a royal spear, was symbolic of his right to judge, and throwing it was his right to execute judgment. So that's that's sort of the symbology here. The reason this is important is because the name Methuselah literally means man of the spear. But it means so much more than that. If If you only work with the literal meaning of the word, you miss it. If all you say is man of, spear, man of the spear, it doesn't mean anything to us, but what it's really pointing to is royal judgment, the right for a king to judge. But again, this is the day of the divine right of kings, where the line between a king and God was a thin, blurry little line. So it's not just a royal right to judge, it is a divine right to judge. In, pointing, or in naming his son Methuselah, Enoch is pointing to the judgment of God. And if you want to check that, in the book of Jude, thin little book right before the book of Revelation, it talks about Enoch naming his son as a prophecy that God came to him at the birth of his son and said, I want you to name your son the judgment of God. That's what I want you to name him. Or the fuller meaning of it is after him, the judgment of God. Imagine God coming to you and telling you to name your kid that. (laughs) Okay, or not. But it means the judgment of God. And if I'm taking a note, that's what I'm taking for Methuselah, the judgment of God. Now question, when most people remember Methuselah, what do we typically remember Methuselah for? 
Yep, we got some guys in this uh, genealogy living a long, long time, but this is the guy who lasts the longest, 969 years. That is a run. Well, knowing that his name means after him the judgment of God, what does that tell us about the judgment of God? It tells us that God is very slow about judgment, that God is not eager to do judgment. 2 Peter 3, 7 through 9 says this, But the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Please don't think that God is ever in a rush to judge. He just is not. You know, I've seen so many Christians who get frustrated with the way the world is going, and boy, they're just saying, boy, God's going to be judging those people. He's going to really give it to them. And it's like, you know, that's just not how it's going to go down at all. If you read through the book of Revelation, one thing that should jump out at you is that the revelation itself is very loud. John keeps saying, this loud voice, that loud voice, this sound, this sound, sound, sound. It's very noisy as a revelation, all the way up until it comes to the final judgment. And then everything is silent. Everything is absolutely silent. <clears throat> Why? Because this is a momentous occasion, and at momentous occasions, there will be no words, because words are foolish, and there's nobody going to be gloating, because God will be looking at this, these people he is casting into an eternity of hell, and he's looking at them saying, I formed you specially, I created you, I loved you, I gifted you, I had such plans for you, and this is what it's come to. God's heart will be breaking in that day, and there will be nobody rejoicing in the judgment of God. Now, his holiness compels him, and he will cross every T and dot every I when it comes to sin. But do not think for a second that he enjoys it. Do not think he's looking forward to it. He is not, and he is patient, wanting people to come to a knowledge of Christ. Okay, Lamech, verse 28. Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he named his son Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands, arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah, and he had other sons and daughters, so all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. Okay, if I'm taking a note about Lamech, Really, it's just his name. Now, by the way, this Lamech is a different Lamech than what we had in chapter 4. Remember I said in chapter 4 there was this Lamech who was a major bum? This is a different guy. Same name, different guy. I think this name was about as common as like Larry is today, okay? But if I'm taking a note about Lamech, I'm taking the note trust because that's what his name means. His name means trust. Trust. And right behind that, we have Noah. Noah literally means rest. The name Noah literally means rest, but look at what Lamech says about him. For he will, this one will give us rest from the work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. He's not talking about rest like let's go take a vacation. He's talking about that striving and that rebellion that we have in our sin against God that just wears us out. I know as I get older, I'm just tired of all this. I'm tired of all the sin. It's just exhausting. And that he's pointing to this kind of rest. It is much more than just taking a vacation. It is a spiritual rest. It is a rest or a break from not being in the presence of sin anymore. That's the kind of rest that Lamech is referring to here. You with me? You following this? Okay. <clears throat> That's the genealogy. It was awesome, right? 
You know the application. You got this, right? Got it covered. Okay, here's the entire genealogy right here. Okay. Now, what do we make of all this? Why is any of this important? Well, Genesis 5, as I said before, is poetry, which means you can't read it in a straightforward manner. When it comes to a genealogy, what you're doing is you are, in a sense, making a pearl necklace. Now, you know how to make a pearl necklace, right? You take the string, and one by one, you drop pearls onto the string until it fills up and becomes a necklace. Think of it that way, that each pearl is one of the people that we've just looked at, one of these people up here, and you're going to drop what you know about them all. But you never look at a necklace one pearl at a time, do you? Right? If someone comes to you and says, what do you think of my pearl necklace? You're not going to say something like, well, you know, the third, the eighth, and the 13th pearl are really awesome. Right? That'd be foolish. You're going to get slapped, and I'm not going to cry for you. What you do is you step back and you look at the necklace as a whole. You look at the whole necklace. When you look at poetry, you look at the whole poem, not necessarily one or two words within that poem. Unfortunately, so many Christians will study their Bible in exactly that manner, that they want to go hit one word and just sift and sift and sift that word so that they have the full understanding of that word. But there are times when that doesn't work. And anytime you're dealing with poetry, that just doesn't work. In other words, if I start off with once upon a midnight dreary while I ponder weak and weary, is there really a whole lot of value in spending time on what the word dreary means? There's none. Right? We want to look at the poem as a whole. And what the writer of Genesis is saying here is, I'm giving you this genealogy as poetry, but I want you to see it as a whole. I want you to see all of it. Now, I realized after I uh, sent my PowerPoint for this message, I forgot somebody on the, uh, on the genealogy itself. And the person I want you to put is at the very top of this genealogy. If you're taking notes, and I hope you are, Adam. I forgot Adam, of all people. So if you'll write Adam at the top, and the note I want you to take is human. Adam, human. Okay, so stepping back, you've got all your notes. What does it mean? Well, originally I said that Genesis 3.15 is the way to understand this genealogy. When Eve names her child Seth, she's referring back to the promise of Genesis 3.15. Is this the one? Is this the guy? No, Seth was not the guy. But this genealogy tells us about who that child of promise will be. It tells us that God will send a human, Adam, who will be appointed by God, Seth, for all of mankind, Enosh. Though the world will consider him a nobody, Kenan, he will be the praise of God, Mahalalel, the servant descended from heaven, Jared, whose life will be dedicated to conquering death, Enoch, even as he bears the judgment of God, Methuselah, for all those who trust in him, Lamech, and he will give us rest from our sin, Noah. Sound familiar? Who's that? Yeah, that's about Jesus. Let me give all that to you again, just so you get it, okay? Genesis 3.15 is the promise that God will send a human, Adam, who will be appointed by God, Seth, for all of mankind, Enosh, Though the world will consider him a nobody, Kenan, he will be the praise of God, Mahalalel, the servant descended from heaven, Jared, whose life will be dedicated to conquering death, Enoch, even as he bears the judgment of God, Methuselah, for all those who trust in him, Lamech, and he will give us rest from our sin. That is all about Jesus. Genesis 5 points us to the gospel of God, the decisive action that God will take to make things right again after they got screwed up in the garden. And by the way, I asked you to take three notes on Jared, didn't I? And I didn't use one. 
This one down here rose, right? For those of you who can see. <clears throat> I'll give this to you. Um, as I get older, I don't like coincidences. I think coincidences are ways of saying we don't know something. Um, but this one could very well be a coincidence. The second commandment is that we are not to have any graven images of God, right? Is Jesus God? Yes, he is. So why are we painting him? We have all sorts of paintings of Jesus. A lot of artists have been very uncomfortable painting Jesus. Now, artists have gone back and forth on this, whether or not it's fair to paint Jesus or not. Um, but for those artists who were uncomfortable painting him, but they wanted to leave him in the painting, they wanted to include him, they would paint him as a symbol. Anybody know what that symbol was? What? A rose. That's exactly right. And so I look at that and think, probably a coincidence, probably, but I'll let you decide that one. That one's for you. Okay, so I know I've got at least one person sitting there saying, okay, Tony, this is great. Glad you're here. We can, you know, the more I listen to you, Tony, the more I can't wait for your new senior pastor to show up. Um, you're preaching your heart out. God bless you. But I got a question for you, Tony. I came here today and I'm looking for something that I can use. I'm looking for something that can help me live my life as a Christian, help me raise my family, help me at work. And, you know, okay, all these names that I can't pronounce, this is great, but in the end, Mahalalel, Shmalalalel, do you have anything here that can help me live my life today? Anything? Because I'm not seeing it. And my answer is, yeah, of course, there's definitely something here that can help you. Well, okay, Tony, you want to go ahead and share that? I was like, well, yeah, yeah, I'll share it with you, but um, hold on, because you may not like this answer. You ready? For the person who's looking at this saying, I don't see anything that I can use in my life, the answer is this. It's not about you. It's not about you. It never was and it never will be. It's about Christ. It always was and it always will be. Let me ask you this. Have you had people hold their Bible up and say that this is the instruction manual for life? Have you heard that? Have you had them hold it up and say this is God's love letter to us? Okay, technically that's not wrong. Technic very technically, though, it's not wrong. But the problem is, is it's really misleading when you do that. Because when you say that this is the instruction manual for life or that it's God's love letter to us, you take this book and you make it a book about us. It's not about us. Never was and never will be. This book is about Christ. This book is about God revealing Christ to us and the decisive action that God has taken in history to make things straight from what happened in the garden. This book is about God and about Christ. It's not about us. And so often when we're coming to the Bible and saying, well, I just need something that I can use in my life, well, the problem with that is you'll skip over some of the most important parts of the Bible because you look at it and say, well, I can't use this. Well, okay, but it's not about you. It's about Christ. And the more we know about Christ and the more we learn about him and fall deeply in love with him, the more we very naturally become obedient. It is about loving Christ and knowing him and making much of him. It's not about us. Does that make sense? The book of Revelation says that God is actually writing a book on every person's life. He's recording what goes on. How's that for a thought? Imagine in heaven, you go to the library of everybody's life, and you're just rummaging through, and you come through, and you say, oh, look, the book on Dennis Fay. Oh, we got to pull this one out, right? Uh -huh, we're going to flip through this one. Well, you know what you're going to find out about the book of Dennis's life? Dennis is not the main character in the story of his life. He's not. He never was, and he's never intended to be. The main character in the story of Dennis Faye's life is Jesus Christ. 
Always was, always intended to be. And that is the thing that I think is going to shock a lot of people, that when God saves us, he is saving us for his will, for his purposes, that we may glorify him. He's not saving us so that we can go and live our best life now. He's saving us so that we may glorify him, that we may know him and love him and serve him with a full and open heart. That's what it's about. And so when people come to texts like this and they're only looking for themselves, they're missing what's really going on. That God is saying there's something so much more and you have a vital part to play in it. Just understand it's not really about you and it's not about me, nor is it even about us as a whole. Christ does call us to be followers of him. And if we are to be followers of God, then we need to be occupied with the things that God has occupied. And I would argue we need to be preoccupied with the things that God is preoccupied with. And that is the gospel itself and making disciples of all peoples. Genesis 5 and passages like it are a clear reminder that as followers of Christ, it ain't about us, it is about Christ. And we tend to skip genealogies because we think they're boring. Let me tell you something, guys. The Bible is not here to entertain us. It is here to inflame us. It is here to set us on fire for Jesus Christ. As I, met, leave the, excuse me, as I end this message, I'm not going to end with a call for you to do something or to implement some spiritual action plan or some three-step plan. I'm not going to do that because I don't want this message to be about anything other than Jesus Christ himself. He is the one who has called us. He is the one that we need to make much of. He is the one we need to fall very, very deeply in love with. And for the person who is looking for something to use in their life, if you ponder on that, I think you will find a response that is far deeper and far more consequential than anything that I could give you in a to-do list. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, forgive us. Forgive us for taking your word and making it about us. Forgive us, Lord, for our narcissism. Forgive us, Lord, for thinking it's all about us when really it's all about Christ. Oh, Father, will you form Christ in every person here? Lord, that they will make much of you in their life. Lord, will you drive each person closer to the cross, to cling to the cross and only the cross? Thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you for Christ. And may we make much of Christ in our lives. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.